Welcome to Charting the Course, the official podcast of the Hilton Group at UBS. I'm your host, Betty Galligan. Let me tell you a little bit about the Hilton Group. Established in Newport, Rhode Island by Jamie Hilton in 1991, the Hilton Group Wealth Management at UBS Financial Services is focused on serving a select number of ultra-high net worth clients who see Jamie and his team as personal CFOs, providing customized and tailored wealth management strategies. Is it intimidating to meet a wealth manager like Jamie Hilton, who works closely with ultra high net worth clients as a valued, trusted advisor? Every successful person has a story to tell. Their road to success in business typically starts early in their career. In 1991, I had been working on the floor of the Commodities Exchange for the prior eight or nine years. And uh, I'd come to the conclusion that my career path and my future did not rest on the floor of the COMEX, which was where they traded uh, gold, copper, silver, things like that in New York City. And uh, at that time, I had a three-year-old son, Andy, and uh, I needed to have a job. And so I went looking for a job, and one of my brothers had a friend, Chris Guiling, who was working at the uh, Shearson office in Shrewsbury, New Jersey, and Chris said I should go talk to them, so I went and talked to the manager. The guy's name was Palmer Patton. I do a lot of sailing, and as it turns out, Palmer did a little bit of sailing, but we ended up in my first job interview talking a lot about sailing and a little bit about being a stockbroker, which is what it was in those days, but he offered me a job. Much to the chagrin of the regional salesperson, whose name I won't mention here, she didn't think I would ever succeed, and she was steadfastly against hiring me. Anyway, so that was where my career started with Shearson. It was still Shearson Lehman Brothers in those days. Back in the 1990s, Wall Street and the Commodities Exchange was an exciting place to be. Maybe even scary. Just by way of background, uh, on the floor of the Commodities Exchange where I worked, and I was down there for some pretty exciting times. I was down there when the stock market crashed in 1987. Uh, in the silver pit, and I was the manager of our gold operation uh, when the first Gulf War broke out, which was really a, a pretty big deal. And so oh, down there, uh, you know, people traded by the second, and a long-term position was overnight. And so I really didn't know anything about uh, investing in stocks or bonds or investing for people and with their savings. I, I knew zero. And so, but I needed a job because I had a kid. And uh, as they say, the sight of the gallows focuses the mind. And um, the first hurdle was to uh, pass the Series 7. If you didn't pass the Series 7 in those days, you got fired. And so I really needed to pass that test because I really needed a job. So I studied harder than I'd ever studied in my life. This is the God's honest truth. When I got the test, they don't give you the test results. They send the test results to your company. So when I finally took the test and I, they got the test results, my manager called me into the office, the same nice gentleman, Palmer Patton, and he asked me if I cheated on the test. And I said, I hadn't ever even thought of cheating. I, don't, I wouldn't do that. And I said, why? He said, because I'd never seen a score this high. It's the God's honest truth. 
And I got like a 97 or something like that on the Series 7. Wow. Which goes to show that when I really apply myself, I can do pretty well. So off I went to training. The first few years of a career are often the most fundamental and formative. Jamie's was no different. Anyway, off I went. I went to training. And I remember getting to training and listening to this guy. Uh, Jimmy Ty was the, was the regional manager. And he said, you're going to get up at four o'clock in the morning and start calling people in New York City and then you're going to end your day calling people in California and you're not going to go home until you make 300 phone calls a day. And I remember thinking, I am going to die. This is never going to work. <laughs> anyway, like I say, I had a three-year-old son and a, and a wife. My wife had a great job, but we still had to pay for the house and, the, and you know, feed our kid. So I worked long, long hours. And... Uh, but in those days, the, the whole premise of the business was all about commissions. It was all about, you know, I remember my manager explaining to me, if, if, if we bought 100 shares of IBM for a client, in those days, IBM was about 170 bucks a share, it'd be, you know, $17,000. And then you'd get a commission of about 250 bucks. That's if you gave the client a discount, of course. And then the firm would take 60% of that. And once again, I thought, I am going to die. This is never going to work. <laughs> so, so I just, I couldn't do that. And so in the first few years of my career, I was barely hanging on because I couldn't reconcile, you know, I'm going to like find a stock, get a person to buy it. And then sometime later, you know, maybe have them sell it, right, for the commission. It, it didn't make any sense to me. And around that time, that was in the very early stages of having managed money for clients. And so I started doing that, where instead of buying and selling things, you would, you would find a client, learn about them, have them invest in some funds, and get paid an advisory fee instead of commissions, which, which was, my manager told me I was going to starve to death. But nonetheless, uh, I stuck with it. And in 1994, through a very weird confluence of events, my wife and I moved from New Jersey, where I started, to Rhode Island. And at that point in time, some friends of mine in my old office had started doing these seminars called Financial Strategies for Successful Retirement. And it was a, it was a boxed, all prepackaged seminar system on financial planning. And I had almost no money. I got a new credit card and I got a $10,000 limit on the credit card because the seminar system cost $10,000. And I thought it made a lot more sense because the seminar system taught people how to like, what's a stock? What's a bond? What's a mutual fund? How does social security work? How does a 401k work? And how does estate planning work? What's a trust? What's a will? And it was a, it was a four week course. And I got connected with the adult education program at Roger Williams University, and they allowed me to teach the course as part of their adult education program. And we taught it one night a week at the campus in Bristol, and then one night a week at their uh, campus in Providence. And it was around that time that I met my now partner, then intern, Kara Musler, and we would teach these seminars. I would teach these seminars. Kara would do all the work in getting the people there, and we would send out 
literally 10,000 invitations. 10,000? 10,000, is that right? We sent out 10,000 invitations, and we get like 60 people to go, 60 couples. And the courses were three hours a night, one night a week for four weeks. And we did it Tuesday night at one location and Thursday night at the other location. It was a lot of work. But it was really good because what we did, and we were doing it a long time before, this was back in 94, okay? We were teaching financial planning. And then we would, at the end of the seminar, everybody would get, if they wanted, a free financial plan, which we would provide to them. From that, they could then decide you know, how to best invest their money to fit with the end result of the financial plan. What an interesting journey from the commodities exchange to teaching to financial planning. We started kind of by accident, but you know, in 1994, we were doing planning-based financial advice, and we still do it to this day. From working on the commodities exchange, where trading happened literally second by second, to teaching financial planning, and then helping people learn how to invest their money over very long time frames, where the markets might go into bear markets because bear markets are gonna happen. And part of the financial planning process is to understand that that's gonna happen. The business grew so fast, Jamie and Kara stopped teaching seminars and had to place a limitation on the number of clients they could serve. Despite his last name being Hilton, Jamie is not related to the famous Hilton Hotel family. Here, he talks about his own family background. My family was in the clothing business. My great-grandfather came here from the Kiev area, believe it or not, during the pogroms in the 1880s, and he was a haberdasher. And he started a, a clothing business in Schenectady, New York, and then moved it down to Linden, New Jersey. And um, that business was grew into quite a substantial business uh, by the time he passed, I think he was around 58 years old, my uncle and my father um, were in the business. And, and one thing that my father taught me when I started in, in my career in financial planning and financial advice was that if you take good care of your clients, your clients will take good care of you. And that's a principle we've always applied to all of our work at the Hilton Group. Uh, I personally believe that the industry... You know, there are some conflicts of interest, but I've always believed that we put our clients' interests before any of our interests. We'll never have a difficult decision to make because it's the, the, the right thing to do is always clearly obvious in front of you. And that's something that I learned from my dad. And uh, just on a sidebar, when my dad was in his 60s, he branched off from Hilton Manufacturing and started his own little firm, manufacturing clothes. And uh, it, was, it was Hilton Manufacturing made mostly men's suits. Uh, my dad's firm made more casual clothes. And some years later, when uh, Brooks Brothers had their 175th anniversary celebration at their main store on Madison Avenue, my father's little firm was recognized for one of their five most valued suppliers. And he took me with him. It was a black tie affair. And it was really neat to see my dad honored in that way for such a prestigious firm as Brooks Brothers. And it was basically because, and you could just tell from the people who were there talking to him, 
that he took really good care of his clients and he practiced what he preached. And so that's something that we, we at the Hilton Group, I'm not sure where we, you were, we are unique, that's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying that that principle of, of if we take good care of our clients, we will have easy decisions to make philosophically. Be sure to listen to Chapter 2 of the Hilton Group's Charting the Course podcast featuring Kara Musiler. In the 1990s, after teaching financial planning seminars together to very appreciative audiences, Jamie Hilton and Kara Musiler made a name for themselves. Together, they started serving clients in wealth management and never looked back. Kara tells us about her background and how it shaped her work ethic. I grew up as your typical latchkey kid. Uh, my brother and I would come home from school to an empty house, uh, we had to call my mom while she was at work to tell her that we got home safely. And of course, back in those days, we had to ride our bike both ways to school and home. And um, it's a couple miles. Oh. <laughs> my mom eventually took a job working for herself in the insurance industry. I didn't know it at the time, but she had cashed out of my brother and my college savings to start her business. On weekends, she would have me out canvassing various neighborhoods, hanging door hangers on front doors and putting flyers in the mailbox. And that was considered, back in those days, marketing. So if I fast forwarded many doors in many neighborhoods later, she became a very successful business owner through hard work and determination. Mm -hmm. Failure was not an option. Meanwhile, as I got older and started entering college, we would have to get a job and make our own money. Nothing was handed except for education, which we did not take for granted. I had to make a budget, which in those days was a foreign word to me, and um, I had to stick to it. So at a very early age, I learned the discipline that it took that I'm now able to impart upon our clients. First time I met Jamie, I was um, sailing a regatta, sailboat regatta. I was in Spain and uh, I interviewed with him for a job. And I have a business background. I was brought up very disciplined and structured and it made sense. Both Jamie and Kara's stories intertwine and intersect around the imprint of their upbringing on their career philosophies and business approach. Well, I think we're both very uh, focused on, on our work and the goal and the goal is to take good care of our clients and, and provide good advice. And um, we're both very focused people. I mean, there may be at different points in time days when I don't talk to Kara, but I don't need to because I know 
it's not like we need to check on each other. <laughs> we never have to worry about one of us disappearing. We're always accountable. Be sure to listen to Chapter 3 of the Hilton Group's Charting the Course podcast featuring Tony Serino. Over the years, the Hilton Group grew. Success came relatively easy as Jamie and Kara were open to continuous learning and continuous improvement and how best to serve clients. One of the principles I learned from a client back that I met back cold calling way back when, a guy named Fred Shahadi. Uh, Fred taught me the principle of the five steps for success. And they were preparation, presentation, execution, follow through, and follow up. And Fred was a very successful businessman in the carpet business, and very successful. And Fred assured me that if we stuck to those five steps of success, we would be successful. And I believe he was absolutely correct. And so one of the things we do in part of our business practice management is, is our contact management system. We always know what we've talked to clients about, what the follow-up things are, and a follow-up could be six, seven, eight months later. But we always know what we have talked to them about, and we always know the next task that needs to be done. And so we needed someone who could take our notes and put them into a system and, 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 and then have them come up at the right time, and that was typically the work of an intern. Added to the team were various interns from Salve Regina, Roger Williams, and the University of Rhode Island. One very special intern stood out. So somewhere around 2014 or 2015, about our 35th or 40th uh, intern was a young man named Tony Serena, who at the time was a junior or senior at Salve. I was a senior. He's a senior, he's a big boy senior pants mm-hmm. on. What was he studying? Financial management. Financial <laughs> management, all right. But luck, right? Yes. And he was on his way to, uh, he'd enrolled in the program where uh, after five years, you get your, you come out not only with your BA in financial management. Yeah, bachelor's degree in financial management and master's in business administration. So... So that was, a, that was a winner because Tony was a, a smart young man and we also could have him for a couple of years, which means, you know, we didn't have to teach someone else to do all the work again, you know, because right. typically that's what happens. They graduate and we set them free and off they go to wonderful careers, having started at the Hilton Group, of course. <laughs> and so, uh, but Tony, we noticed something different and, and uh, we're at a point in time where we needed to have someone stay on, on a permanent basis and Tony, was a, we could just tell he was a keeper. To add an employee to the Hilton Group team would require a lot of vetting. Jamie recalls the process he and Kara went through to see if Tony had what it takes. Interestingly enough, and I think Tony knows this, we used to be allowed to use uh, a two different um, systems for identifying talent. One was called the Perfect Fit and the other was the Colby system. And 
we got a bunch of people because we were knew we were going to have this this position open, and I had used outside coaches, and and I was f- familiar with the uh, predictive index was a was the one right predictive index, and and the uh, Colby I think it's right fit or something like that. So we used both tests, which were very very indic- very good, and I'll be candid, we had people with really really strong resumes, you know, on paper better than Tony, but. Tony knocked it out of the park in both of those two uh, personality types of things. And and what what's more, those tests, remember Kara, they showed that he was a perfect overlay mm-hmm. of of skill sets that we didn't have. Oh. But that his value sets were exactly aligned with our 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 idea and our principles of the business. And so uh, we gave Tony the job, or we offered him the job. Luckily for us, he took it. And for some reason, he's still here. Tony, is, since then, has got his uh, certified financial planning. Uh, I don't know what you call it. Certification. Certification. Oh, certification. Which Kara also has. Yeah, which Kara also has. Here, Tony talks about his path to financial management. When I started in college, I was on scholarship and just taking my classes the first couple years and the end of sophomore year came around and uh, I got a call to the counselor's office which you know I'm not sure whether it's a good thing or a bad thing at that point but they told me I hadn't picked a major yet and if I didn't pick a major I would default to general education so if you think about someone who's at university on a scholarship, it's probably not a good use of, of funds. So I thought to myself, you know, I don't really know what I want to do. I know I want to help people, but, but how do I get to that point? And what career path do I take to get to that point? And I wasn't entirely sure where I wanted to go, but I knew that if nothing else, taking a financial degree would give me background to help myself, um, through life, whatever I ended up doing. So that's how I ended up in financial management. And Lo and behold, through two years of, of schooling after that, junior and senior year, I, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed myself, and I was pretty good at it. So when you were an intern, mm-hmm. were some of your tasks, like you had to make color copies on a black and white copier? <laughs> you do not start on the top of the totem pole. That is that is a fact. Yeah, it's, it's um, you know, the copier is, was, was one of my good friends, the um, hole puncher. Mm-hmm. Um, the binding machine, but you know, I was willing to do all those things because I believed in what they did, and and you know, talking to the clients and and people that we worked with every day, um, some tremendous people in their own right. And if I can work with people like that for the rest of my life, then I'm doing something right. Aligning with values is the key to a successful team. I figured out pretty quickly that I liked the people I worked with, and I thought that was important to me because team chemistry can't be understated. Um, You can work with the most successful people in the world, but if you don't align with their values, it's probably not gonna work out over the long term. Tony talks about his journey and his own continuous learning. I knew I wanted to stay in Newport. I grew up in Mystic, um, always lived on the water, very grateful for it. And through working learning from Jamie and Kara who, you know, the results speak for themselves, the, the awards speak for themselves. They're, they're very decorated and very, very experienced in what they do. I knew it was the right fit. And from that point on, you know, the first few years I spent a lot of my time just, you know, 
learn as much as possible. These are two very successful people, probably two of the best in Rhode Island. Um, and, and they taught me wonderful things. And so my, my biggest thing is I never like to stop learning. Um, if you go through a day and you haven't learned something, then you probably did something wrong. So, so working with them every day, I was learning multiple things, uh, you know, how to build a plan for a client, you know, how someone with X amount of assets can be wildly different than someone else with the same amount of assets as far as their spending habits, their values, what's important to them. And that really hit me. And that's why, you know, I, I got to this point of where I am and, and really enjoy the work that I do and the people I get to do it with. So it, it's an absolute honor. And, and, you know, that's the end of the story. And not all of it was direct education, right? So I, as Jamie mentioned, I would do the note taking and the contact reports. And even reading these comprehensive notes, you pick up on certain things, whether it's talking to clients about things as far as investments and private credit, you know, it's very nuanced or, you know, just how they're doing in life, what's going on. Is there a marriage or, or is there a new child in the family? The conversation can go in many different ways. And, and just being able to read those reports and, and learn from those, I took a lot out of that as well. Good for you. That's Tony awesome. might not be a sailor like Jamie and I, but he's a very, very hard worker. You want to know a funny story? Mm-hmm. Before I even joined when Lori Burns had asked me if I wanted to work for UBS, I grew up landscaping. So I was thinking UBS as in United Builder Supply. And I'm like, yeah, I'm familiar with the company. I'll probably be doing some budgeting or something. Um, turned out a little bit differently, right? Um, but the- I'm still waiting for my hammer to show up. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> But, but so I was extremely nervous because I had never worked in a business setting at all. I had no financial background other than doing, you know, Excel spreadsheets and invoices for, for a landscaping firm and, and the stock and mutual fund side of things. I didn't know what to expect, but having, you know, walk into the office and getting to have a just normal conversation with someone like Jamie or Kara, you know, um, was, was very easy and, and I was pretty comfortable pretty quickly. We have the nicest clients you could ever imagine. We're very we're blessed with a great book of clients, and uh, I don't think that that's completely random by accident. I think that that's because of the type of business we do and and the type of personality that we're best suited for. The way we characterize it, family stewards is the personality type that that we are best suited for, and we. We describe a family steward as, as someone who is not only interested about their own wealth, and, and most of our clients are already wealthy, but they're equally concerned about their children's well-being and, and passing along the values to future generations so that their, their children and their children's children are not disabled by their wealth. And so that, you know, those generally successful people and... and, and we need to be on the mark for them. We need to be careful about details. And the attention to details is, is really a difference maker. It, it is really, for me, aggravating when we drop the ball and something falls through the cracks. And so when we have an intern doing our note, transcribing the notes into our computers for our follow-up, it's really detailed stuff. And so... <laughs> There's a lot of other stuff going on too, 
And so we need to be very careful not to, because we could bury any. You could take the, the smartest person, and, the, and, and what we've been doing for 25 years is second nature. We could just bury someone, you know, and we'd be careful not to do that. But we keep on feeding them more and feeding them more, because the more they can do, the more they learn, right. the more productive they are, right? Mm -hmm. Which is why, you know, uh, Tony excelled at, at, at taking on more. And, and when he went from being part-time to full-time, then he started doing financial planning work for us. And then he got designated as a whatever the firm calls you, a wealth planning associate. Well, you know, we taught him how to do that. That didn't come from, in all fairness to UBS, it didn't come from UBS. It came from the methodologies that we were using using the UBS platform. And 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 I, Karen and I, you know, saw Tony as someone who could continue on and, and help us grow the business and go to the next step, which no other intern had, that had worked for us had gone before. And that's where he is now. And I think that's why Tony's a really good fit. He was never in it. I need to, you know, start out earning X and what's in it for me never ever once. So that probably crosses mind. That's awesome. No, I think maybe a couple of times, yeah. but <laughs> maybe. But but it's funny because we talk about you know the phone and the service, and I believe I was interviewing with with Kara, and you asked me what my weakness was, and I'm pretty positive I said it was answering the phone, talking on the phone, and because I'm a millennial, you know, I'm, I'm text. I see the phone ring, I'm like throwing it against the wall. I don't want to talk on that. Um, but within a couple weeks, you know, it. it became secondhand nature and I could very easily see why and then you put yourself in the client's perspective they call for Jamie or Kara and you're an intern and you're answering the phone at least you tell them that they're on the other line and they'll call them back versus the phone not getting answered and then they have no clue what's going on so just to go back to that point yes I was extremely nervous to answer the phone the first few times but the merit of doing so it, it is astronomically makes makes a huge difference in the process. Be sure to listen to Chapter 4 of the Hilton Group's Charting the Course podcast, featuring Janet Nobis and Katherine Farnham. Among its many attributes, the Hilton Group certainly has longevity, both in its long-term clients as well as special team members. I would be remiss, as I think about it, if I didn't mention a very important person who is no longer with us at the Hilton Group. She's still alive. <laughs> uh, but, but Janet Nobis... Um, she and I started working together in 94, 95, and she just retired at the end of last year, the end of 2021. And Janet was such an integral part. We're, I'm so lucky that not only were Kara and I, you know, sort of it from the same cut of the cloth in terms of philosophy, but Janet was exactly the same way. And it was so important that we had a, a, an administrative assistant who bought into the business, who understood what we were trying to accomplish, who understood how important our clients are. And so uh, we now have Catherine Farnham, and anybody who was ever gonna follow in Janet Novus's footsteps was, was 
was diving into the deep end of the pool. But, you know, Catherine's been with us now. She started training with Janet back in October. She's got 18 years or more in the business, and she's doing great. But I just, you know, since this is our introductory podcast, it, it you couldn't talk about the history of the Hilton Group without having, you know, a big line for Janet Novus. Because if you were to ask any of our clients who've been with us for 20 years, they would mention Janet Novus, and rightfully and deservedly so. There was a manager back in this, we were still Shearson, maybe we were just becoming Smith Barney, and his name was John Wellington. And John was, a, was young for a manager, but he was a very bright guy. And I had just moved from New Jersey to Rhode Island. And Janet, at that point, worked for a guy named Jerry Siegel, as he was one of the bigger producers in the branch. And uh, John pulled Janet aside, apparently, and said, I want you to work with this guy, Jamie Hilton. And she said something to the effect of, I don't think he's very nice, or he seems to have, <laughs> he's not very nice, or something like that. And John said, said, and Janet would quote this better than I would, but something like, you should work with them because you two together would be very successful. Wow. And, and he was right. And a, few, right. a few years later, uh, Jerry retired and Janet stuck with, with me, God bless her, <laughs> woman's an angel, for the next 24, 25 years. The industry is very pro-teams. They want advisors to form teams. I, I, you know, I don't know specifically what the firm's motivations are, but to me, it always made sense, rather than trying to be a solo operator, that you can collaborate and you can have you can have, you know, individual skills and division of labor, which I always thought that that was what the Industrial Revolution was all about, right? Division of labor. Some people are better at some jobs than others. But we, we knock on wood, we are very lucky that, you know, I mean, it's extraordinary that Janet and Karen and I worked together for 25 years. Uh, but I don't think it's an accident. And I, I'll tell you this, I, I, I know why. I, it's not only a personality thing, it's a philosophical decision that we all do better by the more we put in. And I will tell you that I think that most, most businesses in our business partnerships fail because people go in looking what's in it for me. Mm -hmm. And if you go in looking what is in it for me, you might as well stop right there. Be sure to listen to the fifth and final chapter of the Hilton Group's Charting the Course podcast. It's clear that the Hilton Group team gets along very well. There's a lot of camaraderie and respect for each other, and they put much time into serving their clients exceptionally well. Depending on what you have on the agenda for the day, it can be wildly different whether you are talking to investment teams, money managers, or you know having conversations with clients about their financial plan or different investments, or you know you come in in the morning and the market is down significantly, and that can change the way you approach the day. Just to have a meeting around 9 a.m. every morning, and at that morning meeting, we talk about it. We do have the meeting. It just doesn't happen at 9 a.m. <laughs> <laughs> but we have a meeting around breakfast time, which is around 9.15, 9.30 
always before 10, and uh, we talk about any items for attention that we have. Okay, what do you have, Kara? What do you have, Tony? What do you have, Catherine? Okay, what do you need me to do? Okay, mm-hmm. and and what are the what are the priorities for the day? We have a, a financial planning meeting the next day. We need to be prepared for it. We have a you know a, a potential new client that we're going to speak, and I need to have the materials for the discovery meeting. Or Kara might have any one of the same things, and so that way we know what I'm responsible to do. That Catherine might be waiting on me to do administratively, or. Kara or Catherine knows what I'm looking for and then on um, for me uh, Tuesday through Friday I spend pretty much the rest of the day on the phone and the amount of time you can spend on the phone with clients is is never enough and one of the things that we we really is a central part of our business philosophy is we don't want to have our clients waiting to hear from us because they haven't heard from us in a while. And we definitely do not want our clients to hear from us when and ever have the feeling that we're calling to sell them something because that's just not how we work. So our conversations, we call them in the way. And the premise of the phone calls is just to call up, I would say 50 to 60% of my phone calls any given day is calling you know, Mr. Smith, Mr. Carnes, you know, Mr. Chambers, whoever. What's going on? How you been? This is what we talked about last time. This is what, you know, this is the item we needed, you wanted to follow up on, or this is something that I think is happening, or in, in recent times, it's a lot of it has to do with, you know, what's the market doing? What are the catalysts? You know, and, and one of the things we always focus on is just making sure our clients have enough liquidity because in our financial planning models, we don't try and predict what's gonna happen in the market in the next six months. Here's a prediction. For the rest of our collective lives, the stock market's gonna go higher. It's just not gonna do so in anybody's time frame, and it's gonna do so in an irregular manner. So when, we, when we're talking to clients these days, when the market's in a tough, you know, in a sort of a tough spell, I refer to us as behavioral financial therapists. <laughs> and, and in that role, we cannot spend, there, there are not enough hours in the day to talk to clients. Now, having said that, Kara can, can finish my line for me. Our longest term clients, when it hits the fan in the news and the market goes into a tailspin, what do most of our clients say? They're okay with it. Because they've been coached. Because they've been coached. They'll ask how we are. Yeah, oh, we get we nice. get more. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and and we're not in a combat reactive thing where the phone is blowing up because people are calling up. You know, we're we're still. I mean, you know, it, it's a. We might be stressed, but rarely, it are we getting phone calls that are of a panic mm-hmm. nature when the market is like even back in March of 2020, which was something no one had ever seen it before. You know, 34 percent in 33 days. Wow. That's never happened before. It's like mm-hmm. market going down an elevator shaft, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and uh, even at that, you know, it was, it was we just have a remarkable client base. When I was the uh, manager of this firm on the, uh, of, the of the operation in, in gold, in uh, on the floor of the Comex, we had we did about seven or eight percent of the volume of the business, and we had a lot of clients. Like there were probably. 30 or 40 phones in the booth next to the trading pit 
and and we probably had 100 clients. And the morning after the night that the first cruise missiles were launched uh, for the first Gulf War, gold that night had traded up over $500 for the first time in a long time. And when the market opened up, I think it used to open up at 8.20 in the morning, it traded all the way up to $475. And every phone in the booth lit up. It was nuts. It was, I mean, and one of the things that happened was, you'd pick up a phone and the goal was moving like 10 bucks at a crack. And you pick up a phone and, and it'd be, a, no offense to them, but a small customer, hey, did I buy my one contract at whatever? which was like 20 bucks away from the market, click, you just hang up on it. And you pick up the next phone, it'd be someone saying, I want to buy 500, you know? Right. Well, which phone call do you want to get, okay? <laughs> that, that lesson never left me. Mm. And, and if you want to be really good, and you want to be really good and, at this business, you can only have so many customers. I'm absolutely convinced. If you have too many customers, you don't have a business, you have an insane asylum waiting for a problem to happen, and you can't possibly pay attention to 450 customers. You can't do it, okay? You're, in some ways, keeping them prisoner as opposed to servicing them. Because you can't, I mean, we have about 150 clients right now. I would say it's probably too many. So, you know, we manage about a little under $800 million you know, and and if we want to manage more, we have to be very careful of managing the business because we have to provide very good service to the people that we are already clients. And so what I learned that day on the COMEX was, it is a lot easier to manage fewer, larger clients. We like to say that uh, the average advisor in this business goes about a mile wide and about an inch deep in terms of their depth of knowledge on behalf of a client. We're about an inch wide and we go about a mile deep on behalf of our clients. We've done all this talk about resources and, and whatnot, but one resource you can't make more of is time. And we are, I would say, very good at what we do. And that is solving complex problems. To your point, it's really important that we we are careful about new clients we take on, and we don't want to take on anybody that we that we can't facilitate. And we want to make sure that in taking them on, we we have a personal responsibility to them to deliver the same service that we deliver to everyone else. And so, there are clearly you know, and sometimes it takes a little while to figure out, but there are clearly some clients that personality-wise, I mean, Cara, Tony, and I are all client-facing. And, and we collaborate with each other as we need to on any given client case. But generally speaking, what we're, all, we're all very capable of helping any given client in a particular thing. And if we can't, then we know where to go over the resources to find, find that help. But there are personality types and that you know, just sort of lends itself to working with one advisor versus another. The final question that has remained unanswered during these podcast discussions was how the Hilton Group ended up with UBS. Listen as Jamie explains. I started at Shearson. Mm -hmm. 
and Shearson evolved into Shearson Lehman Brothers and then Shearson American Express and I don't remember the exact lineage but and then Shearson merged with Smith Barney and then uh, Smith Barney merged at that point was with Primerica Primerica merged with City no Travelers Travelers and then with City and we stayed at the same firm all this time. Kara, I didn't keep every business card, but we would have a lot of business cards, never having changed firms. And then the firms were merged into another firm. And when we were at that, when that firm just wasn't a good fit for us. And uh, we were always being courted by headhunters all the time. I mean, that's, you know, there's two people. If an intern lets them get through to me, they have a problem headhunters and wholesalers because I'm on the phone with clients I do not want to take a call from a headhunter or, or a wholesaler okay, that's a huge waste of time and a big, big red flag for the old intern there <laughs> that's a tough conversation but I, I'm nice anyway uh, there came a point in time in 2012 mm-hmm. when we said let the, let the headhunters through and so we started talking to them and so we, we interviewed with a bunch of firms and uh, I came up with a binary scoring system for the firms that we interviewed and zero was the same as where we were negative one was was worse than where we were and plus one was better and uh, when we went through that we did a lot of interviews a lot of due diligence it took almost a year UBS came out pretty far ahead and the reason why was had a lot to do with the local management, but we wanted to work at a firm. We need to have a lot of resources. We need to have a strong banking uh, platform because our clients depend on us for banking functions. We need to have a strong alternative investment platform because we do, you know, a lot of hedge fund business and we do, you know, some private equity business. And we have sophisticated clients that want to have access to those sorts of investments. And we also needed to have access to a lot of money managers because most of our money, we we don't pick stocks and bonds for our clients. We typically hire third-party managers. So in that regard, we're like a general contractor that we hire subcontractors that specialize in different types of, of, of investment management. And we needed a firm that had a lot of the same managers available on the platform and UBS hit all those things. And so, uh, the most important thing, candidly, were the local people. And at that point, Hal Newman, a guy named Hal Newman, ran the office in Providence, and he was fantastic, a great guy. He just I just trusted Hal, and we all trusted Hal. And Heather Foley and Molly Procopio were the office admins, and they were just great people. And, and uh, Hal has moved on, but Heather and Molly are still there, and they're still very much a part of our team today. And, and as in anything, and my father would have said the same thing, it's the people. You know, you can have a better mousetrap, but if you don't have good people, the better mousetrap is not gonna make the difference. And for us, it's the, it's the people. It's the people that I work with in private wealth up in Boston, Max Bardeen and Diana Rogers, and, and uh, people we work with, with the Wealth Management Office in Providence, um, uh, Ryan, and then Heather and Molly, are, they're just fantastic people. And Bill Chilauer, who heads up the, the complex from Hartford, they're just good people. And you can depend on them when you, need, when you need help or you need a problem solved. 
And I think that that has a lot to do with why we ended up at, at UBS. This concludes this chapter in the Hilton Group's Charting the Course podcast. Stay tuned for more topics and episodes, and be sure to visit advisors.ubs.com slash the Hilton Group for more information.